Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The John Frickin' Meerpod is stoked to partner with Garage Grown Gear for Season 6 of the podcast. Garage Grown Gear, or GGG for short, is your online store for all things ultralight backpacking. Dedicated to supporting the growth of small and cottage brands, they've got everything you need all in one place. From ultralight accessories to dehydrated meals to your big three, Garage Grown Gear has everything you need to lighten your load. Based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, GGG is known for its commitment to providing quality ultralight gear, stellar customer service, and free shipping in returns over $40. Do yourself a favor and get your gear at GGG. Update your will, visit with friends and relatives, and otherwise tie up any and all loose ends. Gary Cantrell. You know, I had studied so many race reports that I'd kind of figured out where the course went. And I was kind of banking on the fact that he wouldn't change it much. And he didn't. He only made one small change that year. So I was like, perfect. I just need to do this first part. And I'll do that. Since it's early, we'll all be, you know, I'll be with the front runners. And then as soon as I know that part, I feel like I I should be able to navigate the rest of the loop. And I, you know, I still got a little off here and there, but like, and then once I did it once, like I have... I just had a really good grasp on like visualizing things. And in many ways, like I did it alone, most of the first loop. And I made so many like mental photographs of like, okay, there's an apple tree next to two boulders there. And there's this tree over here. Look for those things when I could, you know, and and I just did so much calculus while I was running by myself. Um, And once I did it once, I I was like, I, I just knew it. I knew the loop after that. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio. Hey, is this thing on? Hello? Hit it again. I think it's on now. Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, where each week, Doc will drag some colorful characters out of the woods to talk trail and type 2 fun. If you're aspiring hiker trash, or if you're just looking to understand the hiker trash in your life, look no further. So lace up those boots, gnaw on some jerky, and settle into your 20-mile pace as we fire up the podcast from somewhere deep in the backcountry. It's time to embrace the suck. 
Welcome back to another week on the trail, dirt bags, hiker trash, and of course, good smelling day hikers. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio. Hey, if you like what we're doing here, help us out. Take just a minute, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like it, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, constant listener, you are in for a real treat this week as we venture back into the dark, cold woods of Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee. Yes, that's right. We're going to be talking to about the Barkley Marathons one more time. And this time, we are talking to another finisher, Dr. John Feggy Varesi. Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, John. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me on. How did I do with the pronunciation? It was really close. Yeah, it was good. Really close. <laughs> Dang it. I was hoping to nail it. Really close. It's all good. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, you know, we usually go by trail names on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Doc, Doc doesn't appear on my paycheck or my driver's license. Uh, something I picked up out there on the trail. Do you have any trail experience? And if so, have you picked up a trail name? Yeah. So I've done quite a few through hikes. Um, I guess I started off with the Appalachian Trail back in uh, 2007. So wow, 15 years ago now. Um, And when I started that trail, I was going through a transitional period and I was living in Lakewood, Ohio at the time. And uh, it's... I was hiking the trail and I started off and I was talking to someone. I started May 1st. So I started really late and I had this grand plan of having this trail name of May Day because May 1st is May Day. And I'm also a pilot. So I uh, thought it was really funny. But then two days later, I met another hiker who was named May Day. (laughs) So I decided not to take that name. And just um, after telling people enough that I was living in Lakewood and I was sort of hiking for my friends and uh, they just started calling me Lakewood. So there's no funny name. It's not like I jumped in a lake with a big block of wood or something. It's just the town I was living in at the time. Yeah. Sometimes it is just a geographic region that you're from. Yeah. I talked to a calendar your triple crowner earlier this year who goes by <clears throat> Kansas Express. He just, you know, he, he that's awesome <laughs> from that area. It just the way it works out. So, all right. So occasionally then John, I will, I will refer to you as Lakewood. Tonight. Awesome. It's been a while since I've heard somebody call me that. So it's it's, it's refreshing. <laughs> nice. Let's bring it back. Let's feel like we're out on the trail there. So so Lakewood, have you had a chance to listen to the podcast at all? I listened to a couple episodes uh, um, after you contacted me. Yeah. I, I don't remember what they were because I have like 27 podcasts that I, I cycle through. So yeah. That's okay. otherwise I, no. I, I like somebody who does their prep work. So nice, nice job there. I only ask because I want to make sure that you are aware of a segment we do, do towards the end of the episode called the hiking hack. And that's where you'll get a chance to share some of your trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. That comes at the end. You have all, all episode to kind of think about it, let it, let it marinate and, and yeah. get really good. Yeah, that sounds good. I do see that. Yeah, cool. Okay. All right. Trailblazers Toolkit. All right, it's time for the Trailblazers Toolkit, sponsored by the Ultralight Backpacking Gear Company, Six Moon Designs. I love to talk about gear on the podcast, and I love to hear about the most important item in my guest adventure gear. And I'm glad that you have some through-hiking experience. This this will fit right in. So, Mm. uh, Lakewood, if you were preparing for your next adventure, and I was the one providing you with all your gear, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? You can give me all the specifics on that piece of gear and tell me why you got to have it out there. So this can be any type of yeah, it could be apparel, it could be luxury item. So John, what is your must bring piece of gear out there? Mm, That's a great one. Uh, If you asked me that question, obviously, like way back when, I would have just said like, oh, a single wall shelter, you know, some kind of shelter. Um, 
But honestly, I it sounds kind of silly, but I think I would say a layer. So I, I came to love Merino wool when I was on the Pacific Crest Trail. And I had this one layer that was like this thin hoodie. And I wore that thing every day and it was adaptable and I could put the hood up if it was sunny. It never got stinky. I just, I loved it. So that's like my go-to piece of, of clothing. And it's just, I wear it every day and it's it's great. Sun, cold, doesn't matter. So that's my one piece, I guess. Nice, nice. Layering is so important out there. I don't, I don't know if people realize that, but I mean, you, you go through all different types of environments and if yeah. you don't have the right layers, it could be, it could be uncomfortable. Yeah, especially on the PCT where it's a desert and then Sierras, you know. That's right. Well, hey, to keep us um, talking about gear, I have another segment. Okay. It's the hiking pole. The hiking pole, and that's pole oh, spelled P-O-L-L, like a survey, not like the the uh, things in your hands out there. I like to explain that to every guest because I think I'm really clever coming up with that. And their That's reaction quite the is, pun. <laughs> is, is, is pretty much your, your reaction. You know, kind of just, you know, a uh, big deal. So um, this is a seven question survey, keeps us talking okay. about gear, but it also allows me to give you a score on the sanity scale mm. from one to a hundred with one being uh, completely insane and 100 being completely sane. And there's an automatic 30 point deduction for anybody who has participated in the Berkeley marathons. So your, that's, your highest that's possible score <laughs> is, is 70. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fair. Because I think we already have a little bit of insight into <laughs> level of sanity, uh, just based yeah. on that. Okay. All uh, right. You haven't seen these questions before. Any, any, any trepidation, any worries right now? A little anxious? <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. Okay. These are all yeah. related. And uh, we'll find out which which side of this issue you fall on. It's always best to give a little bit of an explanation to back up your answer. It helps me calibrate my my scoring method. Okay. Okay. First question: <clears throat> Trekking poles or no trekking poles out there? Uh, yeah, trekking poles. I like the I like the poles. Yeah, a little more explanation than that. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I guess just. Uh, you know, I obviously I didn't use poles my first year at Barkley, but I like them on a through hike for two reasons, I guess. One is because uh, just it saves your knees. You just coming down those those big descents. It's just nice to lean on something. It also helps like if you start to fall, you can catch yourself. But also because it's entertainment. Sometimes when I'm on those long stretches, I'll just spin the poles or I'll throw them or just play with them or something. So perhaps that that lowers my score a little. <laughs> Lakewood, I have to tell you that, you know, this is, this is like episode 253 or 254, something like that. You know, this is season six. <laughs> Talked to a lot of people on the podcast. I've asked a lot of hiking pole questions of people. And last night I was talking to a triple crowner uh, by the name of Boppet. And I was going through the hiking pole and I, and she said entertainment as one of the reasons why. <laughs> That's great. Like trekking poles. And I told her, you are the first person ever to have told me entertainment. I mean, people talk about points of contact, balance, all kinds of other stuff, never, ever entertainment. And now within 24 hours, basically, I've now heard the same reference to entertainment from, from two separate people. That, that's incredible. That's wild. Sounds like I need to have a chat with Bop it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You two are from the same camp. All right. Question number two, what's on your feet, boots or trail runners? Yeah, trail runners, definitely. Yeah. I'm not a big, um, I mean, I'll wear boots like, uh, 
if I'm on a deployment uh, or if I'm on my motorcycle or something, but I will not wear boots if I'm hiking. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people get trapped into, a lot of first time hikers get get trapped into, well, I'm hiking. I think you're supposed to wear hiking boots. I mean, yeah. the, the term is actually in the name of the of the item, yeah. boots. So that, yeah. that must be what I want to wear. And then, you know, eventually they come to the realization that that may may not be the, the best way to go. I, I like lightweight and I like stuff that um, drains well. So I'm, I'm also not really a fan of Gore-Tex because water gets in and then my feet get all like just hot and sticky. I just rather have something light that just drains. So, um, yeah. Do you have a favorite brand? Are you sponsored by anybody? No, uh, I've been trying to find a good pair of shoes for a long time. I think when I hiked the PCT, I wore Brooks Cascadia's, but now I, I run in um, Topos, which I've seemed to like pretty well. Um, they seem like a good a good shoe, so a little bit wider of a foot box. Yeah, I did some time on the High Sierra Trail one summer, and we were going to be hitting the southern half of the JMT, and my feet were just all chewed up because I was wearing boots. I made the mistake. Yeah. I was wearing boots. Uh, this was many years ago. And we're within days of us leaving on the, the JMT. And I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing boots. And I ran out to the store and I was looking around and just by, I didn't have a chance to do any research or anything. And by chance, I picked up a pair of Brooks Cascadia and they were yeah. awesome. Awesome. Really like Yeah. Them. They changed a lot in recent, recently where they don't like them as much, but um, they were, I think I, I wore one pair for over a thousand miles on the PCT. So wow, pretty good shoe. Yeah. Nice. All right. Question number three, when it comes to your shelter, <laughs> do you use a tent, a tarp, hammock, bivy, or cowboy camping? Uh, mostly like a single wall tarp tent, sort of tarp or tarp tent. Um, although on the PCT, I did cowboy camp a lot. So I don't, I'd I, light as possible. So I carried a, I actually carried a six moon designs, um, lunar solo on the, on the AT. And then I carried a tarp tent moment on the PCT. And actually I carried up just a, it was like a, um, I don't even remember what it was. It was like a cape, like a, like a, a poncho that you can pitch into a shelter. And I, that's what I carried for like the first thousand miles on the PCT. Uh, so it was really minimal. Um, didn't keep the bugs out, which was kind of annoying, but yeah, pretty minimal. Now you get bonus points because you mentioned you mentioned our sponsor, Six Moon Designs. So fantastic points yeah. right there for you. Nice way to go. <laughs> yeah, they make good stuff. I like them. Yeah, they make they make a poncho that turns into a tent as well, called the Gatewood Gatewood Cape. Yeah, that's exactly what I had. Yep. Okay. It was a Gatewood there Cape. Yep. All right. Question number four: When it comes to your sleep system, sleeping bag or quilt? Uh, I still use a bag. Yep. Um. Yeah. I guess just. I haven't made that transition. Uh, I do have sort of a quilt, kind of like a hybrid quilt. That's a two person that I'll take with my partner. Like we'll, we'll use that together. But for when I do like lightweight through hiking type stuff, I, I bring a Western mountaineering bag. I think it's really light. It's uh it's like a pound. So that, that's my go-to. Is that down or synthetic? It's down. So I got to be careful with the moisture, but. Right. And how do yeah. you care for your down products? in the off season? Uh, you know, I keep them in like the big bag and then, um, you know, I just, I do wash them, but I use that special stuff and put the tennis balls in there and all that good stuff. So. Okay. Yeah. Now question number five, very important question when it comes to food out there, are you a stove guy, cold soak or stoveless? 
I still like hot food. So I do still bring a stove, but I bring like a super minimal one. Um, it kind of just depends on what I grab out of my bin, but I use like a tiny little cat can stove, I think on one of the trails. And now I've got one of those things. It's like, it's basically like a beer can that someone like hollowed out and you can use it to actually cook your food in. So it's just uh, whatever I can carry, but I, it's, it's alcohol based. So I use an alcohol stove, like a small little one and uh, just cook uh, on that. I was a little nervous there. I wasn't sure how you're going to go. It could be a major point deduction if you say cold soap, because those people are are, are crazy. Uh, so <laughs> I was glad to hear that you're a, a hot food kind of guy, but then you kind of yeah. veered off there to, you know, half of a beer can and uh, you know, minimalist type uh, experience. So we'll, we'll see how yeah. that plays out. All right. Question number six. What's, uh, what's more, uh, I'm sorry, is life better above or below the tree line? Oh, wow. Um, Man, that's a really hard one for me to answer. I really, I really think it's, it's conditional. Like it's, it has to depend on the mood I'm in because you know, the AT is the long green tunnel and, but yet I, it was very cathartic for me because I grew up on the East coast and those are kind of like my woods. But when you go to Colorado and you do like this, the Colorado trail or the PCT and you get above that ridge lines and you're on those real narrow trails carved into the side it's like that you can't really beat that so i guess if i had to pick i'd say above the tree line but it's close all right now i you, you've made mention of the at you've made mention of the pct mm-hmm. have you done the cdt as well are you a triple crowner i am not a triple crowner i've done the colorado trail but not the full ct uh it's on my list one day um i've done the long trail too that one was really fun um but i have not done the full cdt so i'm a Still got two out of three. <laughs> okay. But you have intention of doing the CDT. Someday. Yeah. Yeah. Someday I'd like to do it. It is a rare breed of person who can do two of the long trails and just totally disregard the thing. <laughs> that's, that's correct. Yeah. You either do one or three. That's the thing I always heard that's on the right. trail. That's the, that's the, uh-huh. uh, the rule of thumb. Yes. All right. Question number seven. Last question in the hiking poll. Uh, what's more important, pack weight or luxury items? Uh, probably weight. I know that's going to deduct me some points, but I don't really carry too many luxury items. Um, yeah, I really don't. I, I mean, maybe I'll carry like some sort of like, um, really small book or something, or like I'll carry like a physical map just cause I really love looking at maps and I, I know that's extra weight and stuff, but honestly, I don't really carry too much in the way of luxury stuff. So I wait till I get to the towns and then I, I go crazy and you know, have all the fun in the town. So there you go. There's a time and place for fun. (laughs) (laughs) There's a time and place for luxury. Yeah. All right. Lakewood hiking pole complete standby. I've got to do some math here. You're, you're a doctor, you're, you're a college professor. You understand this. I need to run your (laughs) answers through the, the John freaking Mirpod algorithm. Got to do some math. Got to carry the three, say I divide by root five, going to multiply by pi. And we're going to make a slight adjustment for the wind chill out on loop five in the middle of the night, probably about 2 a.m. And I come up with a score of 48. Okay, right right down the middle. <laughs> I'm at the top of the, the the distribution curve there. That's great, the bell curve. <laughs> You're at the top of the insane half. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Oh. All right. Well, hey, before we get too far down the trail, let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about mm-hmm. uh, where you grew up, mm-hmm. um, your background, sports and hobbies, and how you got yeah. involved, not only in through hiking, but you know, what was the pull of the Barkley? Yeah, a lot of great questions in there. Um, so I grew up in upstate New York, 
um, kind of depends on who you ask what upstate means. Upstate, I mean Rochester, so way upstate, like Western New York. Um, I I didn't do too much in school as far as athletics. I ran cross country. That was the only thing I did. And I kind of stopped doing that in high school because I was taking more advanced coursework and stuff. So I ran cross country. That was it. Um, didn't really do any athletics in college. Uh, I only got back into sort of the running and hiking and outdoor stuff uh, in my late 20s after I had been working for a while. Um, and it was, I talked about this a little in the documentary too, but it, it was really just like uh, a lot of things all came at me at once in my life. I had a lot of personal things going on. I had some malcontents for my job, I guess. I, I wasn't really happy with what I was doing with my work um, and was really felt like I was uh, missing out on my calling of going back to science. And so I had all these things kind of happening at once. And I decided to, you know, have this, <laughs> I guess I had sort of an existential crisis and I decided to go hike the AT and I almost quit. Like I got like two weeks into it and almost, you know, gave up. Uh, but once I got hooked on it, you know, that was it. And it just became part of my, um, just part of who I am now. And it's that, that adventure pull that tugged to the, to the adventure. Um, I just have to keep that fire stoked all the time now. Uh, and it doesn't mean I got to do a through hike every year. It could be something simple. Like I do a four day trip, uh, moto camping or bicycle camping or you know, something, but, um, so that was kind of how I got into it. Uh, and it's just in, it started with the through hiking. So, I mean, that's really my passion of motion is through hiking. And then that kind of shifted back into running when I discovered there was this thing called trail running, which is amazing. Um, cause it combines running with one of my favorite things, trails. So I got into that and, um, but then, yeah, the Barkley is, uh, it was, you know, I've always been sort of attracted to the events that are a little bit more like grassroots type events. Like my first hundred miler was uh, Vermont 100, which is, you know, you camp in a field at the start line and it's just like a hundred people and it's like super low key. And I love that. Whereas like Leadville is like this giant corporate extravaganza now, and it's just not my thing. Um, so I was actually at Leadville. And I was sitting in a hostel chatting with this random person in the hostel. And it turned out to be Matt Mahoney, who is the guy who basically runs the Barkley website, the in, the informal or <laughs> Barkley website. And he's like, you got to find out about this race. And he, and he started telling me about it. And I said, you know, I feel like I read an article about that race a couple of years ago. And it all clicked because I remembered I was trying to get into the hard rock and I saw that it was a qualifying race for hard rock. And I was like, what is this Barkley thing? I've never heard of it. So anyway, talking with Matt at the, at the Leadville Hostel, he uh, he basically filled me in on how to apply, and then I applied that very year while I was stationed in Antarctica. Like I, I sent in the application from a remote field camp in West Antarctica. I had to set like a special scheduler on my email to send it at the right time and everything. And uh, yeah, I just I don't, I mean I know Laz has like certain people he picks him manually, but then the rest at least 10 years ago. And then he had people that he runs some, some kind of like random number generator thing. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know why he picked me. I mean, I had a decent resume at the time, but nothing super crazy. I think he just wanted to see like, uh, would his race beat someone that's, that's experienced Antarctica. <laughs> so I think I maybe had a little bit of an advantage because I was like, Hey, I'm sending you my application from a remote field camp. Um, I don't know, maybe you can well, never tell with the last, I, you, there's a lot to unpack right there. You just uncovered yeah. a lot of material. <laughs> never, first thing I want to comment on is 
holy smokes, how impressive are you? Not only are you a, a trail runner, a through hiker, a Barkley marathon competitor and finisher, but also you were, you were down and uh, stationed at Antarctica. You know, I talked yeah, to, yeah. I talked to Anne Marie. can't remember her last name. Her trail name is zips. And she's a, a, a through hiker did the AT, but she is currently stationed down in Antarctica at McMurdo station. Yep. She mm-hmm. signed up, volunteered, got picked, and she's a steward down there. And she volunteered to stay on for the winter session as well. Oh, that's brave. So she's yeah, like that's... one of 150 people down there. And it's it's like completely mm-hmm. dark right now, or, or soon yep. soon will be completely dark. And I told her, what what a great venue for a horror story. It's just <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff can go yeah. wrong. But uh, yeah, I had no great. idea that you, you had been down in Antarctica. So uh, fantastic. Many times. Yeah. It's been a few years now, but uh, yeah, nine deployments. So I've been down quite a bit now. No, actually, you know what? I take that back. I do think I, I do think I was aware that you were in Antarctica because you did some you did some prep for the Barkley and your application down there. I, I see that in my outline. So yeah, yes, I know that, I, but again, <laughs> just just pointing that out that you know what a well-rounded resume you have. Now you talked about and the lead bill and it being a corporate race, very different from the Vermont 100. And it just yeah. kind of tickled my fancy a little bit. Do we think the Barkley will yeah. ever go corporate? And if if it does, mm-hmm. uh, who would be the sponsors? Who would be the corporate <laughs> sponsors of the Barkley Marathons? Uh, you know, that, that's a great. Um, that's a. It's becoming a more common conversation around the campfire. I think at Barkley, you know, I was obviously there this year, crewing for John Kelly, and um, I think I caught the Barkley right as it was starting to change because 2012, it still had that very like kind of small feel like if you read ed's book it it felt like that and the only reason it felt a little different was just there happened to be the documentary crew there that year but it was still only that one crew and so there were times on that loop uh, or on those loops where i would come up to a book like say at the tower where where spectators are allowed to go even if it was in the day i'd be the only one there and it was awesome i'd be like wow it's just me and the tower and like this year I was there on loop five and there was 200 people at the tower, all like with cameras. And it was like insanity. It was so much different. And so it's really interesting because I, I was right in that cusp. So I get a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new. And you talk to a lot of the really old guys and there, and some of them are like, I don't like the direction it's going. Some of them are just like, yeah, you know, change is inevitable. You talk to all the new guys and they're just like, ah, this is what all races are like. This is what Barkley is. You know, there's social media, there's, there's, there's um, marketing, there's whatever. And then, you know, and then there's also the people that are like, well, you know, this is Laz's thing. And if this is what he wants to do and he wants to, to open it up to more press and, and, you know, it's, it's his choice. It's, this is how he wants to run it. It's his race. So I respect that. Um, you know, I, I do, I do miss a little bit of that old feel a little bit, but I also had a great time there this year, uh, crewing for John. It, it is weird though. Like to see, like, there's like a shoot now they have to, you know, they finish in and, um, you know, we're a crew in the runners, like at the gate now, instead of people going back to their car, it's just, it's very different than it was 10 years ago, but not necessarily good or bad. It's just different. And I think if someone were to sponsor, that's a great question. It, I mean, it would have to be something like, you know, maniacal and sadistic or something. Just give it, exactly. given his like quirky sense of humor, and you know, it, it would be, it would definitely be a good pun or something. I, I nothing's coming to mind, but I can imagine something yeah. really sassy and 
<laughs> yeah, I was thinking something masochistic, sadistic, uh, mental health, some some kind of sponsor along those lines would fit right in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, I, I had mentioned, I'd asked about how'd you get involved with the through hiking cult. Um, mm-hmm. But really, the Barkley has, has achieved a cult-like following. I mean, I remember yeah. watching the documentary, The Race That Eats Its Young, mm-hmm. and just being amazed that something like this existed. And it has, you know, I, I talk about it every chance I get. Anytime there's a, a a passing, very tangential, far off in the distance reference somewhere in my in my talk with somebody on the podcast about the Barkley, I'll go into a full fledged, you know, segment on you know what it's all about and how cool it is. And mm-hmm. I, I think it is just, it has really picked up steam, like you said, over the years. It's it's really growing in popularity. Yeah, there's just, and there's there's so many different formats of um, materials that are coming out. You know, like there was a new book that came out this year called The Finishers, which was really, really well put together. Um, and it it the the two guys that wrote it basically went around the country and interviewed all the finishers, and it's just kind of quotes and excerpts from their interviews. Um, obviously, like there was the racist eats it, eats its young, and then there was the Where Dreams Go to Die, the Gary Robbins uh, documentary. And then there's just been these little one-offs and it's just, it's, it, you know, it was on the front page of CNN uh, this year, you know? So it's just, it's, it's made it to like mainstream uh, media. And it, it, even now, 10 years after the documentary comes out, I'll be sometimes at a random place, like a, you know, like at a farmer's market or something. And someone will run up to me and be like, I just watched you on Netflix. And I'm just like, Oh God, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's very rare now. It only happens like once every couple of months, but it, it still happens. It's weird. It's really strange. So yeah. I've asked several people in the past decade, you know, have you heard about the Barclays and, and, and it used to be, mm-hmm. no, what, what are you talking about? And, yeah. and more and more often now it's like, oh yeah, that's crazy. That is absolutely yeah. bonkers. So it's kind of permeating the, the, uh, mm. American, American culture and sure. probably, probably larger than American culture. Cause I know it's, I know it's huge in France too. Yeah. I, it's really big in Europe. And yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of people from New Zealand and Australia that run it mm-hmm. and it's just, yeah, it's getting really big, very global. Now you crewed for John Kelly this, mm-hmm. this, uh, this past, is it March or April? It was in March. It was it March, was mid March. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you, you crewed in, in in mid March. I have gotten Jeff Garmeyer, uh, aka mm. Legend. Yeah, to yeah. Promise me that when he gets back into the Barclays, that I will be a a an honorary crew member for, uh, for his team. So, do you have any tips on, for me on you know how to properly crew the Barclay? Uh, well, I'll say two things. First of all, Laz changed the rules, and so now runners are only allowed one crew member total. So that's if good. you, that's if you, my chances, I think. <laughs> so that's the first thing it means you are the only crew, you are a crew chief and crew member, like the whole deal. Um, but also like, um, I don't mind saying this, but like John, John is, can be tough to crew for. Um, I love him, but he's also, he, he's not very communicative when he's like in his ultra mode. So he just kind of gets like narrow, like just, he just kind of sits there. Uh, and I kind of just have to give stuff to him. And it's just because he's so hyper focused, and um, so he's hard sometimes to read. Whereas like some of the other guys, like Damien was there this year. He was so like chipper, and you know it was it was great. He's quintessential British too. He was like, "Can I have my tea?" You know, it was just awesome. He was such a cool guy. I love that guy. Um, and so you know, I'd watch him getting crewed by my other friend Jody, and it was just like they were they were talking to each other, and and I felt like a bad crew person because I I didn't know what John always needed, 
but thankfully like we had a we had a good like plan beforehand and so i was able to not do anything catastrophic like my biggest fear was sending him out with like out his map or without a headlamp or something and i got food in him um i think a key strategy is to have multiple packs so that when you come in the other pack your next pack is already loaded and with everything you need and i can just put it on you as opposed to taking your pack off taking all the garbage out you know so he had two packs that every loop when he'd come in i'd i'd restock it so it was ready and then he also had five pairs of shoes so we would just put it next pair of shoes on each time so that was really key and then like i said now everybody crews at the gate so Two hours before I expect him in, I'd I'd move everything up to the gate. I'd lay it all out, get a stove going, get some hot water in a furnace, and kind of get everything ready so that as soon as he came in, I could cook food, get change of clothes, get his new pack on, everything. And uh, you know, you really got to be like a like a assembly line now. It's a crazy frantic. It's so fast. Sounds like so. an like an indie race. Uh, what do they call it? It's that? pit like, stop. Yeah, it's a pit, pit stop. stop. I mean, it really is. Yeah. It really yeah. is now. Um, and and you know they changed the rules. Also, another thing that that was that was different this year was um, you used to be allowed to go out on the trails, the public trails at night. So I would always go up to the tower after in every loop, the day loop, the night loop. And, you know, sometimes I'd be the only one up there at night for the runners. And now the park has said no one's allowed on the trails after dark. So when the night loop came, I'd be like, see you in twelve hours. You know, like I I just and I'd go to bed because it's like I don't have anything to do. So, um, get a nice night's yeah. sleep. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, <laughs> and he was, he was like a metronome, like, uh, you know, he almost always came in within like an hour, an hour and a half of when I expected him. So he was pretty easy to, to gauge in that respect. So, okay. Well, Hey, uh, Lakewood, I appreciate that. I feel really prepared now. I can tell Garmeyer that I have <laughs> had official training as a Barkley crew member. So, oh, I you. hope he gets back in. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, Jeff. I don't know that I've met Jeff, but, uh, I certainly know of his exploits. So. Yeah, I hope he, he gets in. He is hilarious. He's currently barnstorming right now. He's got a, a new documentary out made about his FKT of the of the Colorado Trail. Oh, right. I did hear about that. Yeah. And he's got a book or really something good. out too, right? Really good. Yes. Yep. All right. Cool. Hey, before we uh, get to our break, let's talk about how you pay the bills these days. What What are you mm-hmm. doing to uh, finance your next adventure out there? Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm a faculty member uh, at the Nor- at Northern Arizona University. I work in um, it's complicated, but it's the School of Earth and Sustainability. Um, so it's basically our geoscience department, um, and I teach a bunch of classes in climate science, paleoclimate, um, geoscience, uh, just kind of that whole spectrum. Um, I direct a program. That's meant for students looking to work in sort of the climate solutions sector. So people that want to work in renewable energy or uh, mitigation efforts or greenhouse gas accounting, things like that. Um, but I still also do a, a chunk of my time as a researcher. So I, I specifically still research Antarctic ice cores. I've got a small grant with the uh, NSF and some students that I work with um, directly on research projects. So kind of split that. So I, I love the teaching. I love working with students. I, I Before this job, I was working at a federal lab in, uh, on the Vermont, New Hampshire border, and it was all research. And it was great. I liked it, but I didn't get to work with students and it kind of, I missed that. So so now I'm, I'm kind of in the ideal situation and it 
technically I get the summers off. <laughs> so it, it's, I say technically because, you know, you're still expected to work on research and, and, and do things over the summer. But if I disappear for two weeks, it's not a big deal. So that's how I'm able to do, you know, sort of mini adventures over the summer um, without having to like take vacation. So it's kind of nice. It's a sweet deal. Right. Semester or quarter system? Semester. So actually next week is the last week of the semester. So I'm feeling good. <laughs> We're almost done with the semester. You're getting close. And, and what's, yeah. your typical, what's your typical class load per semester? Uh, I usually teach two classes, but then also usually like a one credit seminar. So kind of like two and a half classes a, a semester. And do you have, do you have a favorite class you like to teach? Sweet spot. Uh, yeah. I mean, this, the, the researcher scientist in me likes teaching like the paleoclimate class. Cause it's all sort of like the physics of, of climate science and earth's climate history and things like that. But the, the more like uh student oriented version, like part of me that likes to work with the students. I really like um, this class. It's, it's called a, it's a discourse class. So it's topics and discourse, but basically it's project-based. So the students will like do the semester long project where they'll work with the city council and flag staff to develop a climate action plan, or they'll plant a bunch of trees and, you know, and do a mitigation effort or something. It's, it's really fun because they're doing real projects and they're, and they're working with like real stakeholders. And uh, so it's really fun to see them kind of blossom and, and work with real companies and industries and nonprofits and things. All right, professor in 30 seconds or less, what's going on with the climate? What can we expect? <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Um, the IPCC just actually put out a brand new synthesis report and, uh, it's, it's probably the most stark that they've put out. I mean, it's, it's very, it doesn't dance at all. It just says, here's what's happening. We're, we're probably not going to make the 1.5 degree goals, uh, set out in the Paris Accords. like, uh, the, the, the science is absolutely clear. Like we're past that now. There's absolutely no debate in the scientific community. Um, you know, it's, it's, what do we do about it? And, and what I'm learning and teaching a lot of these classes is how difficult it is to get policy implemented at any level. It's just, there's so much lobbying and it's very difficult. Um, but also how much people think that like, you know, I have some sort of agenda. Like I don't care about politics. I just want, I just, I believe the science and I just want to fix stuff. Um, and you know, I don't care if I get grants funded. I just want people to, to start working on solutions. And so I've found the most effective way for me when I talk to people that maybe don't agree so much, uh, or, or a little bit on the other side of the spectrum, you know, I just say, whether you believe it or not, like, things are changing. Let, let's talk about how we can fix stuff. Like even if you don't believe the sea levels are rising or climate is warming, crops are definitely failing. So how do we fix that? <laughs> sea levels are coming up. So how do we, how do we deal with that? Even if you want to call it something else, you know, just try to try to think about actually fixing the problem. So. Yeah. What is it going to take to, to see a change in behavior in, in, uh, on this planet? I mean, with, I with so. what's going on, I mean, we've been hearing the cry on this for decades yeah, and still we're 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 just barreling forward with seemingly yeah. not a whole lot of change. It's I mean I just I literally had class today and we had this exact discussion with, with the students. It's there are so many facets. Um, you know, there's the transportation sector, there's the industry sector, there's the energy sector, there's power plants, there's you know things is totally different. Like how do we make cities more walkable? How do we build bike infrastructure? You know, all these methods. Uh, I mean, the bottom line, when you take away all these different policies and methods is we have to just simply reduce the amount of greenhouse gases we're emitting. 
or increase the amount of greenhouse gases that we're uptaking and not just by the oceans. Like we actually have to like figure out a way to take CO2 out of the atmosphere and stop belching it out because that's the big problem. We're just, we're burning fossil fuels a million times faster than the earth stores them. So it's just, it's running away. Yeah. And the only thing that, that helps me get some sleep at night is knowing that there are <laughs> smart people like you working on this kind of stuff, and hopefully we, we can come up with some innovation that's going to, going to help us out. Cause evidently, you know, behavior is not going to change all that much. So. It's hard. It's hard to change yeah. behavior. I mean, we, we have a, we have a guest lecture right now on campus giving a seminar and his profession is he's a, he's a professor of climate anxiety. Like his whole field is he deals with people that are like anxious about climate change. It's that it's getting to that point where people are like really, really getting stressed out about it. Uh, it's wild. So. Wow. And, you know, as always, I like to have guests on here that if our listeners listen on a regular basis, they can apply for college credit for everything they learn on the podcast. So, so thank you for helping to continue that tradition. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from the sponsors, pay some bills. And when we come back, we're going to get down to some, uh, some very interesting material with uh, what Lakewood's been doing out there with some ultra marathons. Of course, we're going to talk about the, the Barclays and mm-hmm. get some more insight from John. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water using time-released liposome technology topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going, knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. This episode is sponsored by Jolly Gear. Are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button-down and the full protection of a sun hoodie? With the Triple Crown button-down, you can have the best of both. Plus, their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail. Visit them at jollygear.com. Thru-hiker owned. Jolly Gear. Where fun meets functional. Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. With a wide range of products ranging from ultralight shelters to backpacks and accessories like their extensive line of trekking umbrellas, Six Moon Designs is sure to have a great piece of gear for your needs. With the company philosophy being that gear should aid one's experience, not define it, Six Moon Designs thinks the more time people spend outside the natural world, the better off this world will be. And remember, go wild, live young. And welcome back. We are talking to John Feg Barisi. Feg Barisi. It's all good. Feg Barisi. Feg Barisi. <laughs> That's what I meant to say. Feg Barisi. And uh, we just got a little, a little bit of college credit on uh, from his department at NAU yes. uh, School of Earth and Sustainability. Thank you very much. 
But let's talk about sure some fun stuff now. Let's let's talk yeah. about. I found out that you are currently on a quest to complete 100 ultra marathons. That is right. And that as of, as of now, officially, I'm at 97 because uh, wow. I finished the Zion 50K last week. Uh, so, yeah, and I've got one coming up next week as well. So, oh, you are you are just rolling down the tracks. To 100. <laughs> it's you know, it, I had no idea. It wasn't like I've been planning this for years. I was bored one night. And I was looking through my results that I, I have my own kind of sheet of results I keep because there's there's been some races I've done over the years that are kind of obscure that like don't show up on ultra sign up or whatever. And I just started adding them up. And uh, I got to the end and I realized I was like, wow, I've got like 96. This is awesome. And then I realized I'm, I'm doing these big races this summer. I was like, it would be really cool if I could time it. And so it, it's it's been very like serendipitous because I knew I needed to put some races on my calendar for training anyway. So it's just kind of, I line them up and assuming I don't sprain an ankle or, or you know, get COVID or something, <laughs> I should be good. So, but you've inspired me now because I've got, uh, I've got, I'm looking at the wall right now of my race bibs and uh, medals from various, you know, 5k, 10k half marathons. And I've got four marathons under my belt. I am definitely not going to do 96 more marathons. I don't, I don't think that's possible. But maybe, maybe I'll go through and I'll count up the total number of races and we'll, we'll look for an even number. Maybe, maybe whatever it takes to get to 50 or 75, 75 is not even, I know, but uh, you know what I mean? A good number though. Yeah. It's a good number. Good number. Yeah. Tell us about the, tell us about the Zion, excuse me, about the Zion. How'd that go? It was really good. Uh, I, you know, I ran the hundred K version last year and I, I just did not have a good day. I was uh, very undertrained. And it was very hot. I do not like running in the hot. Um, I am definitely a cold adapted person. So I had a rough day. And what I realized though, is the 50 K is kind of all the best parts of the hundred K without the bad parts. So I was like, perfect. I'll run the 50 K. And so I had a blast. Um, you know, I, I went up there, um, on very little sleep because I kind of had done a different adventure two days prior that we'll just say I didn't get much sleep. And then, so I drove up there five hours on little sleep and then immediately ran for five and a half hours and then drove home. So it was a, it was a very long weekend, but, uh, it was, it was, a, it's a really beautiful course. It really is. Um, you know, the race organizers are kind of interesting cause it's like vacation races. It's like meant for, for, uh, it's kind of marketed for people like as like come to Zion as a vacation and then run this 50 K. So it definitely attracts a slightly different crowd, but you know what? It gets people off the couch. So I'm all for it. So it's all now, good. Liquid. You're a little cagey there. You're a little cagey mm -hmm. about the pre-race activities. <laughs> I'm intrigued. I wanted to focus on the race, but you know, uh, you're, you're kind of evasive there about what happened before the race. Anyway, it wasn't like, a, it wasn't that? a running, it wasn't a running thing. It was a different adventure. Uh, if you really want, I guess, so I, I mentioned this earlier, but um, and I guess we can talk about this later, but I, I I started getting into like adventure riding, like motorcycle riding. So I got like a dual sport bike and I, I load it up and I go on these long camping trips on it. Well, there's this tradition, just like in the ultra running world, where it's called the iron butt challenge. And the, the goal is that you're supposed to ride your motorcycle for a thousand miles in less than 24 hours. <laughs> And so I decided to try it. And, you know, my motorcycle is not uh, necessarily like super highway worthy. You know, top speed is like 65 on it. 
And so, you know, I had to pick very secondary roads, but man, it was amazing. I, I, I did this loop around Arizona that was up on the plateau, through the mountains, through the desert, through, you know, every ecosystem and terrain you can imagine. And it was amazing. I went all the way through Navajo Nation and Monument Valley, and it was awesome. So, you know, it took me 21 hours and then I slept for like three and then got up and then drove to Zion. And yeah, so that, that's what I was doing. I was being an idiot on a motorcycle. That's wild. Now, now, Maggie, we we always are on the lookout for a trail name for the episode. Just like I like to incorporate that. I'm always looking for something unique, funny, something that comes up that I can I can title the episode. That I'm not sure if we can do it with this one because we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But hearing the words "the Iron Butt Challenge," I mean, yes. that, really, that really speaks to me. Yeah, I like to call it the Grand Ride because it's a thousand miles. I think that's a little more subtle, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote up a, like a ride report on my, uh, on my journal site. If you really want to read about it. You are a crazy man. That's awesome. <laughs> it was fun. All right. Now you mentioned earlier that the 50 K has all the good qualities of the 100 K without, without necessarily the agony. I feel the same way about like a half marathon as compared to a marathon. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so how did you, how did you get into your head? How did it, how did it occur to you that, you know what, 26.2, is just not far enough. I want to go further than that. I mean, who, who says that? I, you know, I don't know what that switch was. I, I definitely trained what, after I got off the AT, I decided to run a marathon. I just want to see if I could do it. And so, you know, I did all the road stuff. Like I did the road training plan. I wrote, ran all my runs on roads and I ran a marathon and I did okay. It was like three hours and something. I don't remember. And, um, and it was great. And I did it again. And I did it again. And at some point someone was like, you know, you should try doing this on trails. It's more fun. <laughs> and that's when I discovered trail running. And, uh, after like my third marathon, I saw that there was a 50 miler in Vermont. And I was like, well, I love Vermont. It's like one of my favorite places. And I'm just really, I just want to try it. I want to see what happens. Like, uh, I think I had read somebody's race report and was like, that just seems so far. Like I can't imagine getting to the end of a marathon and turning around but then you get out there and it's like, you go slower and there's aid stations and you hang out. And it, and I, I just, I really discovered kind of like my people. Cause I love marathon. The road marathons are great. And I, and I'm the kind of person that likes to mix it up a little. Like I do like some diversity in my runs every once in a while, I'll just sign up for a random 10 K or something. I don't like doing the same thing all the time. So I, I do still do a random marathon here and there, but uh, I really just, just vibed better with sort of the trail running community. Um, especially at these sort of low key races. And so I did Vermont and then I was like, I wonder what it's like to do a 50 miler and turn around and do a hundred. And it just, yeah. And so far I haven't had that, that switch flip for the 200 milers. I know that's like the big thing now everybody's doing 200 milers. Um, I just, I don't know. Like I, I hiked a long trail and that was 200 and something. And I did that as like sort of an FKT attempt. And I was like, I don't really have a desire to do 200 miles, right? At least right now. So yeah, as we're um, recording this, the Cocodona is coming up uh, pretty soon. It is. Jeff, yeah. Jeff Garmeyer is, is he's posted that he's running it. So interesting to see how that turns out for him. And in previous yeah. episodes, I've had on a couple of times, these, these two guys, uh, Kevin Goldberg and oh, he's gonna he's gonna kill me for, for forgetting his name. Gabe, Gabe Peterson, Gabe Peterson, and Kevin oh, Goldberg, yeah. and they fast packed the John Muir Trail in a little over five days. And I comes to I come to find out the second time I'm interviewing them that Gabe is like among the premier American 200 milers out there. He's he's, yep. he's kind of cream of the crop. I didn't realize I was talking to a celebrity. I thought he was just like <laughs> some goofy guy. I who tried recognize to, that name. Tried to yeah. run the JMT. 
but uh, uh, yeah, just fa- 200 miles. That's almost un- unfathomable. It's uh, yeah. hard to think about. And I, yeah, in the Cocodona, I think, is, isn't it 250? It's even further. Cocodona. Um, but it's cool because it, it ends like the Cocodona ends like three miles from my house. And and I'm doing the, the mini version of it. So it actually starts, I think, on Monday. And I'm running the like the, the 50K, 55K version that starts on Friday. And the start line is a mile from my house. So I can walk to the start and then finish in downtown and like, walk home so it's just really cool nice. that i can do and i run those trails like all the time so it's just like oh, i'm going out for a long run on a saturday or whatever yeah i mean one so of the, one of the big pains of of running a marathon or half marathon whatever is usually logistics and getting to the race getting there in yeah. time parking getting to the, the start mm-hmm. line i mean being able to walk to the start line how awesome is that yeah it's great i love it so nice now do you have any do you have a favorite uh ultra that you've run one that really stands out. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple that when people ask me that question, it's always hard to like, when you're dealing with superlatives, it's like, eh, I don't know. It depends on the situation, but I think, I mean, I, I guess I would say I have three that stand out um, for different reasons. One is obviously the Barkley. Um, Cause it was just so special. Uh, everything about that, just everything lined up perfectly. And it was just the most amazing experience. It was the most brutal race I've ever done, hands down, the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, but it was just, be, just everything about it makes it special. Um, but then the other two races I think that stand out are um, the Hard Rock. Uh, it's I think it has, it's probably the most beautiful course I've ever run. There's a couple in there that are close. And I obviously haven't done all the high mountain courses. You know, I'm sure the one in Andorra is amazing and UTMB and Fat Dog and all those amazing ones. Um but hard rock is, is awesome. I love it. It's beautiful and very difficult. <laughs> and then also the third one that I like to mention, just because it's so different is the Spartathlon. I got the very awesome honor and privilege of running that race several years ago. It's really hard. You got to qualify for that and you got to run fast. Uh, I had to run like a sub 10 hundred K or something like that. I had to run like a yeah nine hour hundred K to qualify for that thing. It was fast. And the cutoff is 36 hours to run 153 miles. So it is hard. Wow. Um, you, you basically have to hit the hundred mile mark in like 20 hours to finish that race. And that's, that's tough. And I finished, um, that was the year that the Spartathlon had the Mediterranean cyclone. So like <laughs> the last 20 miles, I was like running through a hurricane. It was insanity. Mm-hmm. And I finished with like 25 minutes to spare. So I was like, Yes. But it's just what makes it so special is the whole country celebrates it. Like thousands of people come out and they cheer you on and they run up to get your autograph. And it's like, it's the really strange experience. And like the mayor of Athens takes you out to dinner. I mean, it's just wild. It's it's such an interesting experience. Um, and I just, I, and you know, you run for your team, your country. So I like had the U.S. shirt on. It was really kind of cool to be a part of the U.S. team. So that was, that was really special as well. That is awesome. Now, John, explain to our listeners, do people run the entire ultra marathon? I, I don't think that's a thing. Uh, it depends on the race. You know, it depends on the race. Um, yeah. I've definitely done hundred milers where I've run 95 miles of it. Uh, you know, I mean, you walk some of it, but um, like Spartathlon, I ran every step until probably mile 70, just because you have to have, you have to keep running. But like something like hard rock, you're going to be hiking a ton. Um, 
So a typical ultra, like, you know, I usually walk or power hike, like anything that's over a certain incline gradient. I, I don't know what that is, but you know, you just kind of know it when you're on it. Like, hey, I'm going to hike this. Uh, and then as the race goes on, that gradient gets lower and lower. It's like, okay, this is a slight climb. I'm going to hike this. Um, yeah, I'm so, not yeah. ashamed. I'm not ashamed to admit on, you know, a- after mile 20 on a marathon, if there's any kind of incline, I- I'm, I'm, you know, taking a short walk sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's great strategies for it. Like even at Spartathlon, once I got to like, you know, the hundred K part, I was doing like eight twos where I'd run for eight minutes, walk for two, run for eight minutes, walk for two. And it's just a great way to like, you know, space things out and conserve energy. So I'm a big fan of walking and I I walk pretty fast so I can, you know, I can still do well if I'm like power hiking. Um, yeah, it's definitely a strength of mine that I got, I built through all my years of through hiking with the poles and I just, you know, kind of can crank out really strong miles. Um, you know, a great example of that is I did the the one of Laz's races called the Vol State, which is 314 miles across Tennessee on all paved roads. And uh, I got second place in that in the crew division, and I probably walked 75% of it, but I just walked consistently three and a half miles an hour, and I like never slept. So people think, you know, like you got to run that to, to do well. And I got second place by almost hiking the entire thing. So, yeah, it's just it's just about consistency. Yeah, well, so. I, I can't even carry your Cascadias, but you make me feel better about myself <laughs> hearing that 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 uh, Lakewood has done a little bit of walking out there. So that's good. Oh yeah, I prefer to walk. <laughs> <laughs> All hmm. right, hey, let's talk about let's let's shift to the Barkley. So okay. you know, we've talked about it a couple of times. There mm-hmm. may be a few people who live under a rock who who still aren't sure what the Barkley is all about. Can you give us a, a brief synopsis of what the race? encompasses and also maybe some of the strange traditions associated with the Barkley. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. So it's, um, you know, it's in theory, it's, it's sort of an underground grassroots race, which has now become much more mainstream. Um, and there's a whole history behind it. The race director, uh, put it in these specific woods of Tennessee because it's by a famous prison, which is no longer actually a prison. It's a whiskey distillery. <laughs> so that's apropos. It's perfect. Um, and that's the prison that uh, James Earl Ray escaped from. And so Jay, the story goes that he escaped and he only made it like five miles into the woods after like 60 hours before the dogs found him. Um, and so, you know, Laz, the dress director said, I bet you I could do a hundred miles in those woods in 60 hours. And that's kind of the, the folklore of it. I mean, essentially he, him and his, his friend, um, Carl just decided, Hey, let's, let's do a race in here. It's going to be really difficult. And back in those days, they didn't really maintain the trails. So even the established trails were, were really rugged. Um, and you know, it started off as a, as a 25 mile loop and then it became, can you do a 50 miler? And so like in the early days, there wasn't even a hundred miler. It was just, can you do uh, 50, I think it was either 50 mile or three loops. And, and, you know, Ed Furtaugh was the first person to finish. So he's kind of considered the first finisher, even though at that time a finish was, you know, 60 miles or whatever. Um, I mean, he is, he is considered the first finisher. Sorry, Ed, if you're watching, you're, you're definitely the first finisher. Um, but it's just, it was just different back then. And, and then Laz made a joke. The director made a joke a couple years later. It's like, all right, now there's a hundred mile edition. And apparently this one guy came over from UK and didn't know it was a joke. And so he just kept going and and he was like, why isn't anybody continuing? And he finished five loops. And by doing that, he proved it was possible. Uh, And uh, everyone was like, oh man, this is going to be a hundred miler now. 
And so, probably, I mean, he that, probably tick, he probably ticked Laz <laughs> off that he finished. It was, I mean, it's great. Mark Williams, he's legendary. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the whole point is that it's supposed to be this race that everything is, is working against you. So, uh, there's the physicality of it is incredibly steep inclines. There's no, a lot of it is off trail. So you're just kind of like navigating through bushwhacking through hillsides, very steep gradients. So you're on all fours. You got to have really good climbing, just insane amounts of training on climbing, um, and briars. And so all of the physical parts of it are out to get you, but then there's all these little quirks. Like, you know, he doesn't tell you when the race is going to start. He just says, it's going to start sometime between now and, and noon. And you just have to wait for it to start. And he, you know, he blows this horn, the shell, uh, an hour before the start. And then all of a sudden you're just like, well, I got an hour to go to get ready. And he doesn't put out the map until the day before the race. So you have no idea where the course is going to go. He changes the course every year. You have to switch directions every year. And sometimes you go, you know, two loops in one direction and then switch. And sometimes you go one loop and switch and, and you never know which direction it's going to be. Um, the weather is always unpredictable and chaotic that time of year in Tennessee. So there's just so many different variables that make it, um, just really, really, uh, yeah, just everything is, is pushing you to quit. And then you come into that from the loop and it's like so much, um, you know, there's warm fire and there's food and there's people you haven't seen people in hours. And you're just like, everything is like, just go to your tent. It's all, it's, you did one loop. You should be proud. You know, it's, it's really hard. There's no, I've never in my life in any race I've done in my 97 ultras, do you experience uh, the temptation to quit? Like you do at Barkley. It's just this overwhelming urge to just be like, screw this. I'm out of here. You know? Um, and it's, 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 to, to that point, like, I mean, I've run it four times and, uh, I've only finished it once. I mean, I finished a fun run one year, so I did three loops one year. Um, but in the other two years I quit on loop two. So, you know, it's, it was, and it was because of those exact reasons I was cold or I was upset or I was bonking and I was just like, ah, screw this. I'm going back to camp, you know? And so it's, it's really hard to get over that lump or that hump. You, you, you've got to, I always tell people, if you really want to do it, you have to, your whole life has to revolve around it. You have to have every part of your life has to be like focused on finishing Barkley. And you can always tell when you see the people that that's true for, like when I was at camp this year, um, I, I had a conversation with Carl Sabe from uh, Belgium. And just by talking to him, I was like, he's going to finish this year. I just knew it. I knew it. But, I mean, he's also done really well in the past. But, uh, I, I just, I, I knew he had the, the fire, you know, and you can just tell, you can tell when people have the fire. So, uh, yeah, I was really rooting for Carl. <laughs> he was my, he was my, uh, yeah, obviously I was rooting for John, but yeah. Now Lakewood, let, let's make a pact right now. Let's, let's put it out there in the universe. Let's publish it right here on the podcast that you're going to, at some point this year, you're going to, you're going to do number 97 or no, you already did number 97, you do number 98. Mm-hmm. And do number ninety nine, and one hundred is going to be next year's Barkley. Let's fit, let's do the one hundredth uh, ultra marathon as the Barkley for you. Uh, I, mean, I already what, got how, Hard Rock how though. Apropos, uh, yeah, yes? it would be cool. No, I got Hard Rock though. That's my hundred. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, so right. yeah, that's that's the whole thing. Like you know, I was leading up to trying to make Hard Rock one hundred be my hundredth ultra. So got it. I got guess it. you know we'll see if if I don't finish Hard Rock maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now for the first time ever, let's have, let's have Feggy give us the detailed method for application into the Barclays. 
no, no. Uh, I know I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people listening stood up a little bit straighter. They sat up a little bit straighter hmm. in their chair. They got their notepad out for a second thinking, okay, yeah. this, finally it's going to be revealed. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that people know, like, right. There's, there's definitely stuff that's like very public. Like everyone knows you got to write an essay, um, you know, things like that. It, and, you know, you got to talk to people and, and, but there's always questions about like, what is the essay like? And there was one year, um, you know, I do have, like I said, I have this journal site where I sometimes write race reports and stuff. And there was one year I published all of my essays on my site and they're still there. You can go read my essays if you want. Um, and so, you know, everyone knows that you do at some point have to write an essay, excuse me. And then everybody knows that, you know, there's definitely like some kind of timing involved. Like there's a certain window that you have to apply in and there's certain rules about applying. I mean, that's basically all I, I would be really want to say. And I get a lot of emails from people asking me like, Hey, I really want to do it. And I kind of have my own personal rule. Like I like to help at least one person each year get in. Um, but I know other finishers are like, I don't answer any of them. And I'm just like, Oh, come on. You got to pass the torch, man. You know? Um, so I don't know. I always make an effort to try and help one or two people, you know, each year. And, 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 but you gotta be careful because it's, it's getting to the point now where, you know, I talked to Laz and he said he gets thousands of applicants, thousands, and you know, he can only let 40 people in and it, he's already so far behind because every year there's a wait list. And then, you know, he moves those people up the wait list into the pool. And so like, you know, he's already got more than 40 people on the wait list. So it's like, he's already like selecting for multiple years out. And so it's just gotten to the point where it's like really, really hard to get into. And I feel bad. And that's why another reason I don't want to run it again, because I'm like, if I take a spot, like he, he has said that, you know, finishers get priority and that's mostly true. I think if I applied next year, I'd probably get in. But I would feel really guilty if I did because there's so few spots. Like I can't, I can't do that, especially since I ha- I haven't finished it in any of the other times I've tried. I've only ever you know done that one extra fun run. So uh, I feel like that would be kind of a kind of a crappy move on my part to take a spot from somebody. Well, it, let me put a different spin on. It. Let me let me assuage your guilt a little bit. Let, let's you know <laughs> apply, get in, and then you can help me. You can you could bring me along as your crew member. You know, and you could, you could, you could uh, help me achieve a dream that I've had for the last decade. Perhaps we'll see. <laughs> no commitment. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Let's talk about 2012, uh, the year you finished, you entered four times. Mm-hmm. This is the one time you finished and yep. your time was 59 hours, 41 minutes and 21 seconds. That's, that's kind of mm-hmm. in the pucker zone. In terms yeah. Of yeah. Cutting it close. Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> Uh, incidentally, Carl broke my record this year. I was going to say that was, the, that was the SKT of the Barkley uh, Hotel this year. Oh, it was so exciting. I was standing <laughs> down the street in the dark waiting for his headlamp and I saw it coming and I like turned and I could see the finish and I was like doing the math in my head and I was like, he's going to finish with six minutes to spare. And he finished with six minutes to spare. I was like, yes. Uh, so that was very exciting. But yeah, I definitely cut it close. And I, I mean, the honest truth is I wasn't sure I was going to finish until essentially I made it to the last book. Uh, when I was at the last book, you, 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 you're still off trail, but very quickly after you're back on established trail and the sun was setting. So it was still light enough out where I could, you know, as soon as I found that trail, I looked down at my watch and I was like, I got an hour and 15 minutes to get in. And I know even when I hike slowly, it's, it takes me just under an hour to get in from here. So I was like, as long as I don't like fall asleep standing up, I should finish with like 15 to 20 minutes to spare. 
And that's, and so I, I, that point, like it was the first time that I, like, I basically was like, okay, I'm going to make it, uh, unless I twist an ankle or something, you know? So. And let's talk yeah, was, about, let's talk about <laughs> sleep deprivation because I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's very little de- little to no downtime. I mean, you're, you're yeah. going for 60 straight hours and sleep yep. deprivation and having to find your way, uh, in the daytime, in the nighttime, this direction, mm-hmm that direction. I mean, that's what makes this race so brutal. I mean, how did sleep deprivation impact that loop five? Yes. So I guess the first thing I would say is, um, that is one of the things that's very different about the race. Now, five, 10 years ago, you could, in a sense, um, budget some sleep in. I'm not saying that necessarily the course was easier. I mean, I guess maybe I am saying it was a little easier, you know, people like Jared or Brett could like say, I'm going to sleep for 40 minutes between these two loops. You, that's just not an option anymore. I think in order to finish now, you essentially have to do it without sleeping. I think Aurelian might have slept for like 20 minutes this year, but John didn't sleep at all. And I know Carl didn't sleep at all. So it's he's kind of eliminated the option for sleep is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Aurelian, uh, as far we, as we talked, we talked about that nap. We talked about that nap and how... how- <laughs> harrowing an experience of that of closing your eyes you got you got your alarm set or you took your caffeine pills or whatever yes but still you're closing your eyes in a state of exhaustion yeah how easy is it to wake up you know six hours later it's oh i i yeah so for me my personal experience is um something was just different like i've done many multi-day adventures and i definitely get tired like i can remember vol state on one of the nights, I mean, I was falling asleep, like waking, you know, falling asleep, walking down the road. And like, when I was doing my long trail hike, I, I literally just like took a dirt nap. Like I fell asleep, just like on the side of the trail, I fell asleep like fully on like against a tree. So I, I do get sleep deprived for sure. Um, but for whatever reason at Barkley, I think I was just so focused, um, that I, I just kept like pushing it away. Like, and, and, and only at the very end of loop five, did stuff start to manifest? Like I started to see some slight hallucinations and I was like thinking I was seeing logs, but they were, you know, just shadows. And, and, and it was, it was a little scary because it was on the very last climb that I started to see false images. And I thought, uh Oh, I'm on the wrong mountain. And I started to second guess where I was. And I had a full on panic attack. Like I'm on the last book and I'm going to fail. And, you know, and I just, I just kept going up and I was like, well, there's nothing else I can do except keep going up and hope I get to the right place to where, you know, the trail just tops out at the top. And I just, thankfully I got to the top and I looked and like, there was the book. So like, I, I and as soon as I got that, like I woke back up, but uh, you know, when I finished, I, I slept for like 15 hours or something. It was like wild. I slept and you sit in that, in the movie, you can even see it in the documentary. There's like that scene where I'm sitting at the gate and I'm just like, Ugh. I have no memory of that at all. None. I no memory. I, I do remember when like Brett and Jared came up and we kind of took that group photo and I remember eating ice cream in my chair, like after the race. But apparently I took a shower, like I changed, you know, I, I walked around. I have no memory of any of that. None of it. So that is wild. I was, I was definitely, I probably lost a few brain cells. <laughs> <that> <laughs> night. <laughs> now it was 2012. Was that your first year or your second It was, time? it was that my was first, first time. Yeah. I know. And what and was I, your strategy going into the race? Were you going to spend the first few loops uh, running with folks that have been there before? May, maybe. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I had studied so many race reports 
and and looked at the map so many times that I'd kind of figured out where the course went. And I was kind of banking on the fact that he wouldn't change it much. And he didn't, he only made one small change that year. So I was like, perfect. I just need to do this first part. That's different. Cause it was also right at the beginning of the loop. And I'll do that since it's early, we'll all be, you know, I'll be with the front runners and I can just do that with them. And then as soon as I know that part, I feel like I, sh- I should be able to navigate the rest of the loop just based on what I know. And I, you know, I still got a little off here and there, but like, and then once I did it once, like I have, I just had a really good grasp on like visualizing things. And in many ways, like I did it alone, most of the first loop. And in many ways it was good because I feel like if I was with people and talking, I would have gotten distracted and I made so many like mental photographs of like, okay, there's an apple tree next to two boulders there. And there's this tree over here. Look for those things when I could, you know, and, and I just did so much calc- calculus while I was running by myself. Um, and once I did it once I, I was like, I, I just knew it. I knew the loop after that. But uh, I always tell people, honestly, in many ways, your first year is your easiest because you honestly, even though you don't know the course, you've never seen any of the course you don't really truly know the hell that you're about to jump into. You don't really know, like you think, you know, but you don't. But when you go back your second year, you know, and you're like, Oh man, am I really doing this again? Um, and it's so much harder to motivate yourself to do it. Cause you just know, you know, the tor- torment you're about to go through. Um, so the second year I showed up, I was actually more trained and my first loop my second year was the fastest loop I've ever run. It's like 8.30 or something. And, you know, I was primed, but the weather was absolute garbage that year. And I got hypothermia and I was massive. It was just just horrible. So I, I failed that year for many reasons. But I also like, once I got behind and I was like a few minutes slower than the previous year, I convinced myself, well, I only had 19 minutes to spare last year. So that's it. I'm out. Even though I definitely could have made up the time, uh, like I just convinced myself it wasn't worth continuing. And, you know, it's those little things that just, that they, they turn you off and that's it. And then you lose the fire. Yeah. I mean, this is a race that takes world-class athletes and just chews them up and spits them out. I mean, there's only been what 17 finishers in what, 35, yeah. 36 years. Yeah. Yeah. I guess 17 now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Crazy. Crazy. And I talked to Mike Wardian who, uh, <laughs> I love my attempt at the Barkley. Talk about yeah. a world class athlete. I mean, that guy He's is such a great that, guy. Oh my gosh, he is amazing. And you know, he, he find him found himself huddled in a cave, uh, fighting hypothermia. Yes, that's right. In loop one, he is. Uh, I love that dude. He, um, yeah. So, and but you know, people, I I love that. Like in some ways, I, I I've inspired some people because they're like, you know, you're the regular guy and you finish. And I, I think that's really awesome that I like represent. You know the the mid packer. Um, but like, to be fair, like to, I, I did train my butt off for this run. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. Cause I didn't publish anything. I didn't talk about it. I didn't tell anyone I was running it, but I mean, I, I think I said this on another podcast. Like I, I was in grad school at the time, my partner, like she was defending her dissertation. She was like, she was already like, I, I don't, I, I need like three months to just like, I can't do anything. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to train for this race. And, you know, I would get up at like, like before the sun right come up and I'd go do like three hours of hill repeats. And then I'd go into my office, I'd do some research and then I'd leave and I'd go do like another four hours of hill repeats. And then like on the weekend, I would do like back to back 12 hour days of like 15,000 feet of gain each day or something. You know, I was just like, I was 
like my whole life was just, I mean, I, I basically didn't really get much time on my dissertation, on my, any of my research. And like my advisor was very cool, but um, that's why you asked like, Oh, let's go back next year. And it's like trying to thinking about that training and like, how would I do that now that I'm, you know, I have to teach and, and it's just, it's so hard. I think being a grad student is a perfect way to train because, you know, you get some flexibility in there depending on how lenient your advisor is. Um, I had the the sort of flexible schedule to train um, in, in that, in that particular year. Um, yeah. And I just don't know if I'd be able to train it adequately. Plus I'm much older now. So I don't, I don't think the, the, the people who call you a regular guy, you know, <laughs> winning for the regular, I don't think that's, that's a, a correct <laughs> assessment uh, from what I, what I know, what I've heard, um, what you've said tonight. And, and also, you know, you're, you're on right race number 98 of your, your ultras. I, I'm not sure too many people do that. I think that that puts me back on the crazy scale. <laughs> That's right. You you've lost some points. You're now in the third. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Now, do you still keep in touch with with Brett or Jared, the uh, the other two finishers that year? Um, I, I once in a while I'll I'll chat with Brett. Um, and then I I I'm I'm still I would say I'm still friends with Jared. I usually only see him at the race though. Um we've talked a few times because he's also somebody that's very into like renewable energy. And so I've actually talked to him about his house. He's got this really cool, like um, passive heating house and, and he's a, an engineer. So we've talked like as like work colleagues as well, but I do stay in touch pretty regularly with um, a, another group of the finishers. So Travis Wildeboer who finished in 2013, Andrew Thompson who finished in 2009 and Jonathan Basham JB uh, finished in 2010 the three of those guys every year have a tradition. They run this race in Virginia called the mountain masochist. And I think Travis has run it like 24 years in a row. Now it's like, he started when he was like 19. Um, and so I started running that with them every year. And I think I've done it like seven times now. Um, and so every November I try to go to Virginia just to like have a, uh, you know, a, uh, a bro weekend with the Barkley alums and David Horton always comes out too. So it's, it's always a, gr- a group of us that are always there and, you know, it's not the most like exciting course, but uh, it's just a really cool way to, to all hang out and have just like 12 hours to just goof off in the woods and have fun conversations and catch up. So I really enjoy that. All right. Now let's talk about uh, this year's finish. We had three finishers, just like the, mm-hmm. the same year that you finished. The only That's right. that the race has had three finishers and you were involved with both of them. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. It's funny. I didn't you think about you that. are the, the keystone there. <laughs> now, how, yeah. how dramatic was it with uh, Sabe's finish? You, you, you it, it was a little great. bit yeah, early, yeah. earlier, but I was, you know, like I think thousands of people around the world, I was, I was following Keith Dunn on Twitter you know, refresh, yeah. refresh, refresh yeah. that, that last loop. I mean, it was, it was bonkers. It was, it was, it was awesome because, you know, by that point, John had finished. So I kind of was like, my duties were done as a crew person, you know, he was done. He was being taken care of by his family at that point. Um, and so I kind of just like chill. And um, that's when I started like checking in on, on Carl. And I knew when Carl went through the tower, cause I was up at the tower when he went through and I did the math. And, you know, you're not allowed to talk to the runners. You can only talk to their crew when they come through. So I, I told his, his brother-in-law, I said, listen, just based on what I know, I said, it's going to be really tight, but I think he's going to do it. I said, I think he's going to come in with like 15, 10 to 15 minutes to spare, but as long as he doesn't get lost, he's going to do it, but it's still going to be a nail biter. 
And so I walked down the street. It was already after dark. I walked down the street to a point where I kind of did the math and said, if I can see his headlamp, I can see the finish. I know that's about five minutes in between. So as long as I see his headlamp before 59, 55, I know he'll make it. And I just kept watching. And eventually I saw this little light bobbing and I looked down and it was like, I think 49 when I saw it. So I was like, he's got 11 minutes to get in. Um, And yeah. And like, you know, I just started hollering up, he's coming. And everyone started freaking out. And meanwhile, I'm, I'm, you know, like uh, the, the website I run far, uh, I had been sending out a few like very sparse tweets with pictures and some like somehow Megan Hicks from, from I run far got my contact information. And so I'm texting her updates, you know, like, Hey, he's coming. And so it was like this insider knowledge. It was really funny. Um, but, uh, and then she ended up using some of my photos uh, on their article, I think, because she was like, you know, you, you took pictures right away and we can just use those quickly. I was like, sure. I don't care. I can use them. Um, so yeah, it was really funny. I'm like texting Megan Hicks. I'm texting Maggie Guterell on my other phone, you know, or, or, uh, both at the same time. And, and it was just really wild. And then he came in and um, I didn't quite see it, but like, I know he collapsed and and it was just, it was really dramatic. So, uh, and then he, he did come up to me afterward and he said, I always told people if I was going to finish Barkley, I was going to do it Feggy style. And I was like, well done, brother. <laughs> so I was like, that's fantastic. Cause you certainly did. I was like, you took my SKT. <laughs> we we uh, just arrived at the trail name for the episode. Feggy style. <laughs> nice. Sure. Yeah. Now, now there's only been 17 finishers. What are the lifetime benefits of being one of the 17 finishers of the Barkley marathon? I mean, do you, do you walk into any bar in Tennessee and get free drinks? <laughs> no. I mean, what, I, I, there's gotta be something. Uh, I mean, yeah, for a little while, people certainly recognized me. Um, Travis always makes fun of me. Cause you know, Travis is actually in the movie in brief parts. Cause he finished a fun run that year. And he's like, every once in a while, someone recognizes me from the movie, but he's like, I would hate to be you because you're like the star. And I was like, oh God, I'm Brett, Brett and Jared were the stars, you know? Um, but now that's mostly gone. And so the only thing really is, and you know, honestly, I don't even know if this is really a policy anymore, but for a while it was the one benefit I got is because I'm a finisher. If I applied, there was a pretty good chance I would get in again. Uh, I don't know if that was official, but it was kind of like unspoken, I think. But now with 17 finishers, I don't know. Like if that's still like, there's a good chance I could apply next year and not get in. You know, I just don't know. I don't know. And I, I have no expectation that I will or I would because I think it's it's really just up to Laz. Um, I think the people that should get in, honestly, are the people uh, that like – got really close and you know, they have it in them and you're just like, if they just had one more chance, you know, like Carl, like Carl got four was on loop four last year. And I was like, you know, I hope he gets another chance. Cause I think he can do it. So, you know, but also you never know, like there could be that person that's never applied just like I was, who's just like doing this crazy training that you don't know about. And they, they apply and they, they have a really strong through hiking background and they know how to navigate and they've got good orienteering skills and they just show up like Aurelian and, and just bang it out and, and shock everyone. And it was awesome. Like it was so cool to see him do that. Well, so. Yeah. John, you'd probably apply and Laz would send you a, a package of uh, an orange soda and a pair of socks and say, <laughs> you know, sorry, but we're full this year. Okay. I can't, you know? I can't, I can't admit a prior winner anymore. 
you you bring up a good point though. One of the privileges of being a finisher is it gives me a little more leverage to like to uh to bust bust Laz's chops more than a normal person. So I know the one year uh like Brett and I showed up or no, it was the year that I finished. Brett showed up after he'd already finished one year. And you know, we always gotta bring something. And finishers have to bring him cigarettes. Like we have to bring him a pack of smokes. And and Brett walks up and Laz says, where's my smokes uh, finisher? Come on. This is what you're supposed to bring me. And Brett said, I buried him under a rock halfway around the loop. Go find him. <laughs> I was like, Oh, no, that's great. I love it. Yeah, so zinger zinger for, for Laz from a, from a finisher. Yeah. And, and it's cool because I do feel like, um, you know, I feel like I have a, a, a pretty cool relationship with Laz. Now, I don't talk with him very much and I usually only see him at Barkley or, or at like a different event. But, um, you know, I was very intimidated by him when I first met him. And I feel like now I can just walk up to him and, and have a cool chat with him. And he's such a, he's such an intelligent guy. And, you, and a lot of people don't realize that he's really smart and um, he's just a really fascinating person to talk with. So does he ever do podcasts? He does. I don't know if he still does, but I don't, he, he did a circuit for a while. He was doing a bunch of podcasts. So I, I know if you, you search around for it, you'll definitely find some with him on it. Well, if I drop your name, can I get him to come on this podcast? Is what I'm getting at. <laughs> uh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you could certainly ask him. Um, yeah. I mean, he trying to think if he's done, I mean, he's definitely, I could think of a way you, you, you could sort of tie it all together is, uh, you know, he's done uh transcon walks. He's walked across the country. Um, and he's doing another one coming up. I forget when it starts, but I mean, he, he walked all the way from, from the Atlantic Pacific and I actually walked the first day with him, uh, when he was started in Rhode Island, I was there when he dipped his toe in the water. So, um, you know, that's definitely kind of more in the through hiking world. Well, there's uh, my, you know, in. there's my, in. Yeah, I approach him exactly. about transcon. And then when I get him on, we, we do a full switch to the Barclay discussion. <laughs> the old switcheroo. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Hey, uh, liquid, you know where we are? I don't. Hiking hacks. It is, yeah. That's right. Hacking hacks. It's time for you to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make <sighs> their next outdoor experience even better, even if they're not running the Barkley. What what advice can you give them? Oh, I'm thinking. <laughs> um, I'm. I'm. I guess you know. I'm thinking about like trying to trying to say something profound without sounding cliche. Um, you know, I, I do think I've evolved personally quite a bit. Um, I'm definitely a numbers guy. So like I was always obsessed with numbers and mileage per day and all that stuff. And I think there's some, some fun in that doing those math, doing that math in your head, but as cliche as it is, you know, my, my wisdom is just, (laughs) don't forget why you're out there. You know, it's like, uh, I've really shifted in my mentality over the years. I do these 50 Ks now, or even these shorter ultras. And it's like, I will stop in Zion and stand at the cliff and eat a snack and be like, wow, look at this. People are zipping by me trying to break six hours or whatever. And I'm just like, you know, life is short. We got to enjoy this stuff, man. So I don't know. That's it's everybody's probably can't answer, but it, there really is so much to say about that. Um, you know, the proverbial roses, all that good stuff. But, um, yeah, that's, yeah, a, that's I think a life, that's a life skill as well, John, you know, nobody, it nobody is. told me when I was a kid, I was always looking forward. And then at some point in my life, I started looking backwards and it's, yeah. it's a rare skill to be able to really enjoy it while it's happening 
and yes, and in that moment, it really is. And and I I can always think about my two my two big through hikes because on the AT I was so focused that I didn't actually start enjoying the trail in its like purest form until I was almost done. Whereas the PCT, I just soaked it in and everything, you know, I, I didn't pre-plan all my meals. I didn't ship all my packages. I just kind of did it and took zero days and just really soaked it in. And it was such a different experience. And, you know, I still do the math in my head and all that stuff, but um, like when it's the same for anything, like, you know, I just, I try to branch out my adventures now more and just, and just soak in all the different experiences. I I take motorcycle tours. I, I take, uh, I ride a century ride on my bicycle or, you know, I do some weird other adventure. uh, And I I just try to try to, I don't know, take as, do as much as I can and experience as much as I can. And uh, I remember the first time I signed up for a 72 hour, one mile loop, everyone was like, are you out of your mind? Like, why would you want to run one mile for 72 hours? And it was actually super fun. Cause you just run with the same people for 72 hours. And it's like a big family reunion. It's just a you're, great you're, experience. You're trapped. You're trapped in the moment right there. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> My point is that like, you can find enjoy Like there's, there's special pieces of every experience, you know, it's just like people, they, they don't even, they just like, ah, I'll never do that. Cause that's, that sounds horrible. But then you get there and you're like, actually, this is kind of cool. And it's just different, you know? So I don't know. All right. Not, that's great advice. Great. great advice. Not cliche. So there you have it. We are just about done here. And you know what, John, there is, there's so much that has been untapped. You know, we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about yeah. the AT. We haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about the PCT, your motorcycle adventures, your biking, yeah. adventures, everything else. You, I, I need a commitment right now. You need to come back on a, a, a later episode this season and we'll, we'll uncover some more stuff about you. How about that? Yeah. And I guess I could, I could give one little shameless plug um, is that, uh, you know, I, I keep talking about this journal that I have. So over like the last 15, 20 years, I, I've been like recording all of my adventures. So I finally decided to do something with all that. So I'm putting it together into a, into like a, a, a basically a, a text um, a collection um, called treks to nowhere. Cause I have this obsession with going places that are like, no one else would want to go. Cause it's just so weird and remote, um, like Antarctica <laughs> and just weird, obscure places. I have such a fascination with that. So I put, I'm putting all this together and I'm almost done with it. And I even put out, um, I, I, I took a stab at podcasting. <laughs> I put out some episodes. So if you really want to listen, treks to nowhere, you can hear about some, I read some of my chapters. And so, um, I don't know. It's just, I don't, I don't know if it'll be any good, but I'm really proud of it because uh, I always wanted to put all my adventures together in one place. And I just thought it was really fun to kind of go back through all that and, and put it together. Well, sign me up for an advanced copy. We'll have you back on <laughs> a third cool. episode and you can read some excerpts. That'll, that'll yeah. be the entire episode. We'll, we'll pick yeah. some excerpts and you, you read them out. That'd be awesome. It's some pretty weird places I've been, like really nice. goofy, obscure places. So The weirder, the better. Excellent. All right. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with John. I want to thank you for joining us this week. Lakewood, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media? Where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't really use Facebook much anymore, but I guess um, I do have an Instagram, such so as Lakewood Hiker, and I, I still have Twitter, Lakewood Hiker. Uh, I guess that's it. And then, yeah, that journal site, I still once in a while post on it, which is, I think... I think it's lakewoodhiker.blogspot.com. Who still has blogs? That sounds so 1990s, but yes, I do still post some of my adventures on there as well. Is there a link to so. your MySpace page? <laughs> I used to have that, you know, it's funny. 
Uh, I used to hey, post my music on there. I played guitar, you know. Nice. Uh, Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We have <laughs> Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you have any comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakamir at gmail.com. Off the beaten path. Now, unfortunately, we can't always be on the trail. And when we're not, we need to find a way to get our adventure fix. So, John, I'm going to ask you to share some outdoor adventure media with our listeners to help them get by. This can be a book, movie, documentary. We call this segment Off the Beaten Path. Do you have any recommendations for us? Uh, um, <laughs> you put me on the spot. I mean, I guess I'm reading, um, I'm reading a book right now. It's right here. I'm just going to pull it out. It's called... Atlas of extinct countries. I really enjoy this kind of goofy geography stuff where like countries that don't exist anymore or strange border anomalies and weird goofy, you know, I think Reddit calls it border porn. <laughs> so I just love that kind of stuff. So you that's what I'm reading. Eso- right now. You have some esoteric interests there. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I'm reading right now. Fantastic. What have we not asked you? And before we wrap things up, just one more segment for you called, what have I not asked you that you're dying to tell us about? What do we miss tonight? I mean, I guess I kind of touched on that. That was that, uh, you know, that, that collection I'm putting together, uh, Treks Nowhere. Yeah. Um, and then I don't really have any other than this, this, this summer double of the Western States hard rock. That's kind of my big thing this year. I don't really know what I've got planned next. Um, I'm thinking about it, trying to decide what I want to do something big after that but the the continental divide trail is still up there i'm still thinking about it calling your name yeah it's definitely tugging at me all right we are finished thank you for coming on the podcast john we wish you the very best in your future ultras we hope you'll consider coming back at at some point in time and sharing some more epic stories as we close up today do you have any shout outs to friends and family um i get. i mean i guess i don't know who's be listening but obviously uh you know, the Barkley guys, um, and, uh, my old friend, Aaron, uh, who got me back into running all those years ago. So thanks buddy. I appreciate it. You've made me a different person and you know, I guess my partner, Christine, thank you for everything. Don't forget the partner. That's right. All right. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost (laughs) dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you're living life fast and loose on Lou 5 for the Barkley. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. Amen. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.